Welcome to a special episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Free Market at Fintech Connect 2022 at the Excel in London. Fintech leaders from the entire Fintech ecosystem are here for two content-packed days to discuss open banking, embedded finance, the future of payments, blockchain, AI, the metaverse, regtech, and lots more. I'm going to be interviewing some of the key speakers and guests here on the free market stand to give you a flavor of the event and to find out more about the topics discussed. I'm here with Ebru Keskin, who's a member of the board at Fintech Connect. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really good to get the Fintech Connect, <laughs> as this is your event, to get your <laughs> take on proceedings. How's the event going? It's going really well, uh, much better than anticipated. There's been a good turnout because I think people are really keen to network in person. And we sort of envisaged this a few months ago in the board meeting and discussed all the topics. So it's brilliant seeing it all come to life. Where do you see this going in the future then? What are the ultimate objectives for Fintech Connect? I think it will go global in terms of continent-wise. So there's um, Fintech Connect Asia, which was very successful. There was a lot of brand participation in that. I can see each continent having an event and I can see the events are getting bigger and probably more, I would say, animated with a lot more going on, with a lot more interest from more mainstream. See, we've seen Spotify and Google's here today, so that's really interesting. And there's a different steer in the whole Fintech market I guess that's what it's representing yeah what do you see as the the key talking points in fintech at the moment at the moment we're talking about new payment methods like embedded finance so we're talking about open banking we're talking about new fraud solutions we're talking about web3 we're talking about crypto we're talking about digital payments and emerging payments like that and also the metaverse as well so new technologies that will require our services in the fintech industry yeah, and I guess this is a, a great place to have all those conversations under one roof. Is that the aim? Yes, that's right. So that was the idea. That's what we were sort of um, imagining a few months when we, we thought about it and we thought Metaverse was something worth discussing because it's a new technology and requires a lot of digital identity and payments. And we're seeing a lot of data and digital identity come together in fintech. So fintech was sort of like a lone island and now it's sort of coming together with lots of different industries taking interest, which has been brilliant. And that's why I guess this participation shows that a lot of people are interested and I think it's going to grow exponentially. Yeah. Ebru Keskin, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Eric Quitham, EVP of Global Strategy and Emerging Businesses at Worldpay. Nice to have you on the podcast, Eric. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. You've just spoken on a panel around digital transformation in payments. What were the key points raised during that session? Yeah, it's a really interesting time. I think if you'd asked this question six months ago, it would have been a little bit different. I think at the heart of the conversation was you know, everybody, whether you're a bank, a leader from Indava who's thinking about helping organizations build great payments products to big merchants, thinking about how you leverage payments to change the customer experience. I think what's difficult now as we think about going into 2023 is the mindset has really changed from growth to profitability across almost every, you know, every organization. I think it's hard to probably marry those two together in a way that most would have liked to, and particularly as, as folks probably thought about 2023, maybe six months ago. And so everyone's gonna have to figure out how to do that in a more cost-effective way with probably less people, less development resource, and all those sorts of things. 
There's been a lot to talk about crypto at FinTech Connect. Do you think consumers are ready to accept crypto as a viable payment option? Yeah, it's interesting. We did some primary research on this earlier in the year, and I think from the consumer side, for those who are really active in the space, I think there is a little bit of demand. We are getting a lot of demand as well from merchants. I think a lot of that, though, is driven from organizations who are trying to find ways to be relevant and to dip their toe into the space. And so you take a large retailer like a, like a Harrods, right? You know, they're starting to think about what does this world of crypto and Web3 mean for me? And what is one way that I can kind of start to get involved? And actually, acceptance at the point of sale with crypto is, is a fairly easy kind of low risk way to do that. And it's a way to prove to you know, your organization as well as to your consumers that you're thinking about it. I think what you're seeing though, more broadly across the world is everybody starting to build crypto and Web3 teams. And so I think we're in the early, early days of organizations figuring out when and how they want to play within the, the space. I think certainly from an acceptance perspective, there is probably very little demand, although there is a little bit of demand. Where is it likely to take off, do you think? Where are we going to see crypto being used as a payment? Is it on social media? Is it on the metaverse? Where is it likely to be? Yeah, good question. I think right now the use cases that are highly relevant or where there's been success to date have been in you know, large transactions, large purchases, certain retail use cases with high ticket value. And then I think if you look into spaces like blockchain-based gaming or other types of applications that are built in Web3 where tokens or crypto are needed in order to interact with those ecosystems, you're obviously seeing kind of acceptance and the ability to do on and off ramping becomes quite important. So I think those are probably the use cases where we'll see it prevail or start to grow a bit in the short term. I think there's probably also some really interesting cross-border use cases that exist. There are a lot of issues with the way cross-border payments work today. But when you think about how does crypto solve that, it's really a balance of cost, security, and speed. And I think the perfect formula for those three doesn't yet exist, which is why you've not seen you know, large organizations latch on to any one solution. Now you mentioned Harrods uh, before. Do you think mainstream retailers are embracing this kind of disruption? I think most retailers or, or mainstream organizations are curiously exploring it. We have a lot of conversations. So we run a very big fiat on and off ramp business for major exchanges and wallets. We've been in the crypto space since 2016. We've always been, you know, I'd say leading from a payments perspective in terms of being an organization who wants to be at the center of what the intersection of fiat and crypto looks like. Because of that, we get a lot of questions from large retailers or other organizations on how they should think about it. And I think our advice continues to be consistent, which is we're very early, the market's evolving. Um, the regulatory framework for how the, the ecosystem is gonna operate is not yet there. Although every day, governments take more and more steps to put frameworks in place that hopefully de-risk the ecosystem. Brazil made a big announcement yesterday. And so I think you know, what we're seeing from organizations is they wanna learn, they're very curious, they're excited to invest resources in understanding it. They're not quite ready to invest resources in building it or in playing in it or jumping straight in. Are there any other trends that you're seeing in consumer payments at the moment? Or could you look into your crystal ball and look into the future and tell us where it might be going? 
I'll mention two. I think one is you know this whole concept of embedded finance, and, and maybe I'll just break it down so everybody knows what we're talking about. So to me, embedded finance today is really three products. It's the ability to open an account, the ability to issue some form of card off the back of that, and then the ability to provide some form of capital or lending capabilities. And I think what's happening is fintechs, merchants, they're learning that there are ways for them to play within that ecosystem. And so there is a lot of buzz about embedded finance, right? It was the big theme of a lot of the big payments conferences this year. I think we're also quite bullish on that, right? And I think, you know, from an FIS perspective, we've served banks that's in the DNA and the heritage of what we do as an organization. And, you know, we have platforms and systems that allow them to maintain account structures, issue cards and do all of that. We're now seeing that intersect with organizations who want to own the customer experience and deliver that in a really seamless way. And I think there is a market there. I think we're headed there. I think it's it's early. I don't think anyone is making a ton of money on it today, but I do think the embedded nature of financial products more into natural consumer flows or B2B flows. You know, I'm a small business who just bought a piece of software. Oh, I can set you up with a bank account. I can automatically deposit those funds. I'll get preferential terms on lending. All those sorts of things are starting to come forefront in the conversation. Fascinating. Eric Creedham, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I'm joined now by Richard Harrison, VP of Sales at Free Market. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so obviously being VP of Sales, it'd be interesting to know about your sales technique and how that has evolved over time. What I've seen, over, especially over the last 10 years of my career, is um, the involvement of more like strategic sales. So really understanding, obviously, what a client requires and then building the solution to match their requirements. So it's not as hard and fast, you know, sort of car salesy um, anymore. You have to use your ears, right? I think, you know, personally, within sales, you become more um, a trusted partner if you do the strategic sales approach and you build trust and you build faith and people really buy into you as an individual instead of just what you're selling. Everybody goes on about relationships are key and you know people buy from people. And I think the older I've got, and dare I say the wiser I get, <laughs> um, that's, uh, you know, that's so, so true. So how's the marketplace looking for you at the moment in your current role? Yeah, I mean, if, if you explain to somebody that Free Market is a cross-border and FX company, yeah, somebody goes, oh yeah, saturated, right? You know, there's loads of people do what you do. And I guess to some degree that's true, right? If, if you actually look at, just one or two elements, but you know we are more than that. And I think if you break it down to how we physically do what we do, you know what we do, yes, is cross-border and FX, but how we physically do it, that's the real differentiator. And I think in the market, I don't see that many companies offering the platform or the services that free market offers. So I think, yeah, yeah, there's loads of FX companies out there. Yes, it is very, uh, I guess, saturated in that degree. But when you start talking about banking resilience and banking redundancy and things that, you know, you've probably heard um, us go on about all day. Yeah, I think there's a niche, right? And there isn't a huge amount of competitors who offer that level of banker partnerships and redundancy and stability and the ability to, to flip payments accounts from one bank to another. Um, so I think that's where we've really carved out a niche for ourselves. Yeah, and you're having those conversations obviously on a daily basis. So is that when their kind of ears prick up and they go, oh, that's different. Yeah, I've not heard that before. I think what makes people's ears prick up is the fact that we have quite a, a strong uh, client retention rate, trusted partnerships. And I think what the aim is for us is to make things as convenient for people as possible. And I think yeah, in this world we live in now, right, convenience is 
most important thing, right? Everybody from buying your shopping, right? You want it yesterday, right? You want to go to one place, Amazon, and get everything right under the sun. But people's brains have been developed that way. So when you start talking about one contract, one solution, a series of banks that we manage, right? They go, oh, that's super convenient. I'm really interested. Yeah. And when you then say to them, you know, you only have to do you know, one KYC process or we'll do all the heavy lifting ourselves. Yeah, that's when, like say, people sort of get super, super interested. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the face-to-face versus virtual approach? So we're here at events, yep. FinTech Connect. What are the future of events like this for, from your perspective? So I, I'm a bit old school, so I like staring at people and pressing the flesh, if you like. I think there was a need for it. So the, the sort of video speed dating, if you like. Yeah, there was a need for that. And I, and I did a few and, and they were run pretty well over COVID. Um, yeah, you basically had eight slots and you filled them and you had 15 minutes per slot and then you automatically got kicked on to the next one. That was good, but it lacked the personal. And I think, you know, I chatted to somebody earlier today, you know, again, people buy from people, right? And it's all well and good being as personal as you can on a video screen, but you, you can't, you don't get this, right? This interaction, you know, this conversation, the natural flow of it. Events like this will always be around. I think there will be a requirement or a need for the video bit, but uh, I think there's a lot of pressure on event companies to outdo other event companies because there's huge competition, right? You know, you've got FinTech Connect, you've got Money 2020, you've got ga- you know, gaming shows like Ice and Sigma and, yeah, there's a huge competition. Obviously, they want everybody to go to them. So you have to show innovation and you have to bring uh, good speakers um, to the show. And people want to come and learn things instead of just doing business, right? They want to come and physically walk away with some knowledge or, or something. So I think, yeah, there's going to be a big pressure on events companies to keep evolving that as much as possible. But these types of events will be around for, for a very long time. Richard Harrison, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Joining me now is Jamie Broadbent, Head of Digital Innovation and Design at RBS International. Welcome, Jamie. Hi there. Good to be here. Yeah, now I know you're speaking tomorrow about consumer payments. How do you see consumer payment habits and trends changing? Yeah, so we've we've already seen some massive changes in consumer habits over the past few years. A big accelerator of that was the COVID pandemic. Cash usage continues to dwindle, as does cards, as people increasingly seek digital first and, and contactless solutions. I think that's been great, but it's probably an indicator of where we're, we're going in the future. Customers want fast, they want frictionless, they want secure, and it'll be really interesting to see which of the emerging technologies that we start to leverage to really deliver those experiences. I mean, is it realistic to think of paying by Alexa or paying for things in your car as you drive to work? I think it is. So, you know, if I think about my young children, right, they're growing up in a household where Alexa is just another voice in the kitchen, right? (laughs) They probably trust its answers more than they trust what dad tells them. And so the reality is that as the next wave of consumer matures, the technologies that they've come to be familiar with and trust will be the ones that they they go to. So I'm certain that in the future, we will absolutely see embedded payments in your home, in your car, wherever you might be. You spoke about your own children. How do you create a banking experience for for young people? How important is financial education to them? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question and somewhere where we're placing a lot of effort right now. I think, if I'm honest, banks probably have had it too good for too long that there wasn't a lot of choice and it was almost a rite of passage. You got to a certain age, you left school, you opened a a bank account with one of the big four. The reality is this next wave of consumer, the youth of today, have no relationship with those banking brands. 
but they're super familiar with the digital first players, the you know, digital platforms like the Amazons, the Metas, the Googles. And the reality is that if we're gonna keep that next generation of consumer, then we've gotta make clear the value that we bring. Uh, we've gotta meet them in the channels where they already are and speak to them in the trusted voices that they recognize. I'm moving on to your corporate clients at RBS International. How do you think your relationship with them is changing or is it changing? Yeah, so it, it's easy to kid yourself that, well, you know, corporate and institutional clients are a different beast. At the end of the day, it's still people, right? And the reality is that most of the financial directors that we deal with now are millennials, people my age, that you know, are digitally savvy, that have come to accept or expect a certain level of user experience in their personal banking and then have a really stark contrast when it comes to doing banking for their business. So there's a lot of ground to make up in terms of consolidating that user experience gap. All of our institutional clients are going through their own transformations right now. So a lot of them are now working remotely and they're looking for solutions to allow them to manage their business finances in very different ways. So for finance directors out there, for example, what kind of solutions are they looking for and what kind of solutions can you offer them? Yeah, so one of the ones that we've been able to deliver in, in recent years has been a mobile solution for remote payment authorization. Finance directors don't want to be anchored to the office in the same way. They're mobile, they're out and about, they want to be able to authorize payments on behalf of their corporate institution, wherever they might be. What we don't want that to be is just a one-trick pony though in terms of a release some funds. Now that we've put the bank in the, the pocket of a key decision maker, what we've created is an opportunity to really make that a two-way channel. So to deliver real-time insight to that, that user, give them the opportunity to contact the bank securely through kind of one click. And we've really created a whole new opportunity now to build new experiences for these clients. Yeah, you mentioned security there as well. I guess that's a really important thing, communicating to them that all these solutions are secure. Is that right? Absolutely. So everybody wants banking to be easy and effortless, but not frictionless, right? When something's a bit too easy, we get nervous. So there's got to be that constant assurance to the customer that this is safe and secure. And again, mobile is a, a really great opportunity to do that because you know there's nothing more secure than who you are and what you have, right? So you know, using biometrics to authorize release of funds is infinitely more secure than you know, your pins and passwords of, of bygone eras. Now we spoke at the start about innovations for consumers, such as paying in your car, paying by Alexa. What about for your corporate clients? What kind of innovations do you think they can look forward to in the future? Yeah, and that's, a, again, a great question that I don't know the answer to, <laughs> but I know that we're going on that journey with them. <clears throat> and that's probably the biggest shift that we have started to see, is that rather than you know the bank go into a dark room and create the experiences and solutions that we think clients want, we're now in this place where we want to co-create with clients. So for corporates and institutions, we've got a lot of the same shared problems. We want to build things together that are mutually beneficial. It's new territory for both us and them, but it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, and aside from that, what are your priorities going into 2023? Wow, I think probably the biggest challenge that I'm going to have in, in 2023 is getting the bank to move faster than it ever has. There is no shortage of challenges, new expectations for customers. An element of me says that the bank still doesn't work at quite the pace that customers both expect and demand. We got a great preview of how rapidly the bank could work during a crisis in COVID. I think we need to keep that same energy and crisis mentality, even when times aren't, aren't quite so tough. Yeah, sure. Well, good luck with that. And Jamie Broadbent, thanks very much for joining me on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. 
Joining me now is Mukund Mulka, Director of Partnerships at ING. Nice to see you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem at all. Now, your panel session here at FinTech Connect is all about integrating AI into RegTech. What are the risks and opportunities that come with AI? Yeah, first of all, I'm really looking forward to the panel tomorrow. Uh, it's a really exciting topic. I mean, AI has a big role to play when it comes to RegTech and FinTech in general. AI can help us read documents, regulatory documents, derive insights, derive our obligations. It has a big role to play in understanding customers, who they are, their behaviors. AI is supporting big kind of credit risk models, you know, automating processes such as reporting. So overall, huge opportunities deploying AI, uh, but of course there are some risks as well that we need to be aware of and manage. So for example, AI is really underpinned by large volumes of data, uh, generally speaking, and so you know, making sure that we protect that customer data, especially protecting people's privacy rights and our obligations is really important. Monitoring the behavior of some of the AI algorithms so that they don't develop biases is really key. AI models, and transparency of AI models is a big topic as well. A lot of AI is about automation, doing things faster, better, but also we need to make sure that we take our people along as well and, and ensure that we augment their capabilities through AI as AI is, a, is an enabler. So yeah, there's massive opportunities and there's some risks as well that we need to, to be aware of, we need to monitor them, but the promise is huge and it's a, it's a massively exciting topic. Let's take a look at the ING perspective on things for a moment. What, what is the ING strategy around FinTech partnerships and can you give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so look, for us, FinTech partnerships is really about collaborating with FinTechs and helping accelerate our digital journey. And we recognize that over the past few years, we've developed teams and capabilities in working closely with, with fintechs and collaborating them. It, it requires a different engagement model, a different mindset. It's not quite the same as working with the IBMs and Microsofts of the world. We've developed processes of you know, how do we identify opportunities and problems that fintechs might be able to help with. How do we go out in the market? How do we scout for right, right fintech partners? How do we test, validate, evaluate their solutions working closely with the business? And then where relevant, how do we scale and distribute those solutions in our organization. This is a big area for us, this is a big priority for us, and we really see this as a way of bringing new capabilities, new solutions, augmenting you know, some of the skill sets that we may have as well. So for example, one of the data privacy is a huge area and, and priority for ING. So one of the companies that we partnered with and also invested in as well is a company called Exate. It helps ING colleagues leverage uh, huge amounts of data sets that we have available, but do it in a way that preserves our customer privacy obligations, data privacy regulations. And so, you know, this is just one example, but there are multiple partnerships we have both globally and locally. And how do these partnerships fit into the overall digital transformation at ING? Yeah, absolutely. So if we start from the top, we have two strategic focus areas. So one of them is providing superior customer experiences, really putting customer at the center of everything we do. And the second is sustainability. You know, we have a huge ambition to be an environmentally sustainable leader and helping our customers, you know, in their transition journey. Now, if you think about these two strategic focus areas, we have four enablers that really support and enable our, our priorities. So the first one is, again, seamless digital journeys, scalable tech and operations, safe and secure, really important, and then finally, our people. And if you think about fintech partnerships, they support all of these enablers. So just to give you again one example, we are currently working with a fintech partner that is helping us create smarter workspaces for our, our teams and our people. What that allows us to do is create gauge interoperability between applications, so really automating the workflows and ways of working for people. 
And ultimately, this is going to help our colleagues be more productive, but also better collaborate with, with each other and be across teams. And ultimately, you know, helping them deliver superior customer experiences. But it's not just about bringing new solutions. It's also about agility, about creativity, about entrepreneurship. And that's where us as ING can really offer fintech companies. We can be a strong partner. We bring to the table a global client base, a deep expertise in financial services and managing risk, and ultimately a strong brand. And therefore, we see this as a win-win opportunity for ING and fintechs to collaborate with each other. Yeah, and uh, a lot of fintech connect, I guess, is about looking into the future, projecting, seeing how the financial landscape might look in the years ahead. Yeah. How do you view this picture and, and how does ING fit into this? There is a lot of change happening all around us and all of us have to really adapt to, to that change. But that's where we feel we as ING, are, you know, that, that's kind of where our strength lies. And, and for us, the way of sort of making sense of all of this change happening around us is really focusing on, on our customers, really focusing on helping them through their needs and through their challenges. And so for us, really it is about making it easy for customers, making it convenient for customers, and really making it personalized for customers. Now this can mean different things to different people. So for example, you know, in case of our sort of private individuals, small businesses, it's really about delivering that personalized service that sort of timely offers for them, you know, through our mobile channels, for example, 24-7 straight through processing. For medium-sized businesses, really it's about tailored solutions and almost uh, intervening on speci uh, at specific events uh, where where they might need support, augmented by expert teams that might be remote or you know face-to-face. -face. In case of our sort of corporate and institutional customers, it's really all about focusing on relationship, focusing on our sort of deep sector knowledge, on our deep networks that we have in the industry. So it means different things for different people, and that's kind of where we are helping our customers you know, deliver superior experiences through digital and then bringing in the right fintech partners to help them through their journey. Fascinating stuff. Mukun Tamulka, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm here with Lauren Maraccini, Head of Innovation at SGSS. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Good morning and welcome to all of you. Your session today was about how financial institutions are preparing for Web3. What was discussed in that session today? It was a very animated panel with insightful speakers. Indeed, the panel, the topic of the panel was Web3, hype, and show me the profitability. So uh, let's start with the hype. Yes, if you just have a look to the Gartner hype cycle, uh, we are still at the beginning of the journey regarding uh, Web3, but we need to understand before moving in this space, and there is a lot of hype regarding this topic and uh, happy to work with uh, the Web3, but uh, yes, definitely we need to understand. The second part of the topic is what will be the role in the Web3. So uh, we will be more than happy to work with the Web3. We have made a lot of achievements in the tokenization and we are convinced that tokenization of a financial asset and non-financial asset will bring a lot of benefits to the industry as a whole, as well as global custody, the crypto custody, that can bring a lot of benefits. And we just need to remember that 55% of the use cases in blockchain are financial use cases. The last point was the profitability of the panel. But regarding the profitability, each innovation topic, we just need to remember that it is innovation topic. We need to invest, we need to invest money, we need to invest time, we need to do experimentation. And after, let's the magic happened, and clearly um, we will see failures, we will see success, but it's up to us to create the future 
and uh, to create new business model and uh, to listen carefully our clients. Crypto is always a big talking point, isn't it? How mainstream do you think it can become? Yes, it's a, it's a good topic because if you see the crypto one year ago, in November 21, the, the crypto market capitalization was at 3 trillion US dollars. It was a big amount. Now it is at 1 trillion US dollars. We had a lot of collapse this year with Terra Luna in May. And the last one with FTX, it was 10 days ago. But from an asset management perspective, we still see a lot of interest to move in this space from the asset management industry. My personal belief is if we want to see the crypto mainstream, we need to work in a regulated environment. And this is where we are moving at SGSS to follow the rules. And our client asset manager, they need to work in a regulated environment and also to do a lot of work in a risk assessment. Yeah, no, I was reading that you've you've introduced a new service for, for asset management companies, haven't you, in terms of how they invest in crypto. Why did you do this and what does that service entail? Yes, indeed, we, we have launched an offer. It was in uh, September of this year to allow our clients to invest in, uh, in crypto. So the first question was the why. Uh, why? Because we have the demand from, uh, from the client and uh, we have the conviction that uh, crypto are here to stay in the future, and especially the central bank digital currency. So uh, what is our offer? So it's an extension of our traditional offer, and we allow our uh, client asset manager to invest in cryptocurrency. They choose crypto exchange, they choose crypto custodian based on different compliance criteria, like uh, regulation, like uh, the countries they operate, no Bahamas, Uh, for example, like the reputation of uh, the ecosystem, the track record in terms of cybersecurity. So we have uh, a lot of criteria. And after we at GSS, we do the record keeping of uh, the crypto position. And uh, after we are, we are able to do all the different elements like uh, NAV calculation, transfer agent and so on. We have onboarded our first client in uh, September. We are live in France in, and in Luxembourg. Now, we always like breaking news on this podcast, so I understand you've made another big announcement this month. Can you tell us about that? It was this month, but it was yesterday, finally. <laughs> Now, there was a big announcement on the market, uh, especially with uh, EIB, so uh, European Investment Bank, that have issued uh, 100 million debt. So it was yesterday, and uh, it has been done under the Luxembourg uh, law, and very happy to have SGSS that has been appointed as account keeper. Excellent. That's great news to hear, and you're, you're very excited about that partnership. Yeah. So thank you very much for your podcast. Lauren Maraccini, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you. Have a good day. Joining me now is Natalia Johnson, CEO and founder at Vassant Capital. Nice to have you on the podcast. Same here. I'm pleased to see you. Can we start with the current geopolitical situation? Because um, I know you were born in Ukraine. How has the war affected your personal, but also your professional outlook? Oh, in so many ways, you know, but the thing is um, being born in Soviet Union and, you know, when Soviet Union collapsed, I was 11. And then I think I've seen a lot through my family businesses. As a child, you know, I was involved in family business in different types. Uh, as a teenager, then, you know, um, when I started in Union, I had five companies. So it was always like a roller coaster. And to me, uh, current events, unfortunately, it's an old absurdity, which is 400 years old. When Russia tries to 
conquer Ukraine, tries to eliminate Ukrainian identity, you know. So it's a saga which is very long lasting, but in terms of effect, it would have been fantastic if times moved on, but history tends to repeat itself. We are very agile as a nation. I think we are particularly agile as a family, and probably I'm a breed of that used to reinvent myself, to adjust to times at a maximum speed, uh, which um, embrace um, uncertainty as a norm for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. I don't know any other lives. Yeah, I mean, you've just got such a fascinating business background, and I can't imagine how difficult the current situation must be for you. But let's bring things up to date. We're here at FinTech Connect. What brings you here today, and what do you see as some of the talking points? A vibe. Mm-hmm. I like positive vibe. Mm-hmm. It's very dynamic always. It's a lot of new trends. You know, it's an annual event, which is um, a must-attend event for me. Different angle to traditional finance. You know, by background, by professional background, I've become investment banker, corporate financier, investor eventually. So sort of my mainstream is finance. But then blend it with technology. Like technology is not anymore an industry. It's an actually, it's a, vet, it's a vertical horizontal, however you put it. It just penetrates each and every industry. So blend it like tech and fin which is fintech is absolutely me because a it's global it's cosmopolitan by various fintech solutions Uh, it's possible to address a lot of issues around the globe and one of them is poverty which is the factor of financial illiteracy well nearly two billion people don't have proper banking services you know so it's like if we can eliminate poverty which is one of the biggest evils of this world fintech can be on the front uh, in this particular yeah. fin- competition. Fintech for good. Fintech, yeah. you know, because mm. finance is important. Finance is powerful. A lot of people don't have finance. They have tremendous talents. Yeah. But if you don't have finance, I'm sorry, it will just remain unutilized talent quite often, you know. And what about from an investment point of view then? What kind? Of, what are the key investment opportunities that you see in the fintech space? So cybersecurity if I may sum up, one of them, right? A financial fraud, again, a human nature, as we know, everyone can be intelligent. Those who find solutions for financial fraud, but equally those who, who utilize financial fraud. You know, both, it's like, you know, it's a competition, right? Again, good and evil. And I like it because it's, the problem exists. Fraud is, is as old as humanity right? Fraud has become sophisticated. We lost geographical boundaries as much with globalization, right? We need to find solutions which are fit for current days problems in a particular space. So again, to sum up, second point is financial crime. Uh, Open banking is a subdivision of that because why we have open banking? Because that no one can, you know, create fake documents to support, for example, loan applications, right? Because of, uh, you know, any lender can go real time and see what's happening in the actual account of a particular person who want to borrow or a company who want to borrow. Another thing is, you know, mobile payments. These days, more and more people have smartphones. Uh, you know, of course, we are very advanced that we live in London, you know, which is like almost, well, I wouldn't say even almost, it's, it's actually at the lead of fintech. When it comes to tech, usually San Francisco is supposed to be like number one and London just, you know, probably number two, number three. But when it comes to fintech, from beginning, 
uh, we actually been on top and we keep the top position. Financial center and technological center in UK is London, unlike in US, where you have technological center in San Francisco, but financial center in New York. And you know, that kind of also creates its own challenges. Mobile payments. My other element is how to optimize uh, internet banking. Uh, how to make overall customer experience within financial institutions more in tune with people's expectations. You know, how people can get service much faster. You know, we are uh, successful people are poor in time. Fortunately, have good resources, but time is our biggest, biggest asset. And whatever solutions save our time, that solution will have a market. You know, be it at individual level or a company level, and not just even, you know, people who are in our field, not even entrepreneurs. Every human being these days has more and more choices. I hope you enjoy your time here at Fintech Connect. Thank you so Connect. much. Natalia Johnson, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this special episode of the C-Suite podcast from Fintech Connect here in London. Thanks to all my guests for taking the time to share their insights and to Free Market for partnering with us on the podcast and hosting us on their stand. If you've enjoyed these interviews and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. The links to all our social media channels and pages can be found at the top of the page at csuitepodcast.com where you can also catch up with our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website, or you can find me, Graham Barrett, and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.